for that. Uh, tonight we're going to do something a little different. We're going to go through the we're going to go through the text, but we really want to are going to look at the life of King Saul because the transition to so the first nine chapters of Chronicles, if you were here, was a gene or genealogies that went from Adam all the way to the children of Israel and to the line of King David. And First Chronicles is really focused on King David and the line of King David. And tonight we've gone through the nine chapters that covered about 3,000 years of history. And now we're going to get back to the, you know, the narrative or story form where we're going to take a look you know, at a much slower pace. But really tonight we're going to look at King Saul. And so in part of doing that, I am going to, which I never do, if you've been coming here, you've probably never seen me do this. We're going to look at First Chronicles, but we are also going to go a little bit through First Samuel uh, because I want us to look at the life of King Saul and why it's so important is because it molded part of who King David is. It gives us a reflection of who King David is, and we'll see that as we go through the text. But let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. We ask, Lord, as we go to your word right now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to each and every one of us. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. So we're moving on from the genealogies, and what we want to remember so we've looked at 3,000 years in time in nine chapters. We've gone from Adam through the line that brought us to the children of Israel, that brought us to the line of Judah that's bringing us to King David, and that will ultimately bring us to Jesus. Now, uh, as we come to this text, First Chronicles, the children of Israel have been in bondage in Babylon for 70 years. And they were taken in three waves to Babylon because they disobeyed God. And now after 70 years, they're going to start coming back into Jerusalem that's been left desolate. So when they were there, they had the temple and, and Jerusalem was a beautiful city. Well, once it was overthrown by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, it's been wiped out. And so now they're going to come back and the people that are coming back, have, most of them have never been there. So they've gotten really comfortable in Babylon, and now they're going to go back to Jerusalem, and God's going to use them to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, to have the Word of God be taught again. So there were three waves that they came in, and we know that, again, we're going to see King Saul in a moment, but the three waves, first was Zerubbabel, came in, and his focus was on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, and it was King Cyrus who, by decree, Babylonian king said, okay, you can take your, some of your people and go back. And so they went back and began to rebuild the temple. We'll see greater detail of that in first half of Ezra and Zechariah and Haggai. And then 57 years later, the second wave bent back and they were led by Ezra. And we'll see that in the second half of the book of Ezra. And he was the one who focused on teaching the word of God and the history to the Jewish people who had returned from Babylon. So they're back, they're back in Israel and now they need to be taught again. They need to be reminded. And that's what we do. Every time we open up the Bible, we need to be reminded again. The book, the Bible's repetitive because we need to hear it again and again and again. Amen? And then we're going to see finally... 12 years after Ezra, uh, Nehemiah, who's going to focus on rebuilding the wall around the uh, city of Jerusalem to help protect them from their enemies. And again, we'll see that that was King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the one that sent him, allowed him to go back. So their reckless and rebellious behavior had led to God's righteous judgment. And now God's grace is bringing them back into the land of promise. So too, that's what happens to us. If we live lives filled with rebellion, if we walk outside of God's will, 
The results are destructive. We're going to see that tonight with King Saul. But here's the good news about our God. He's a God of love and grace and mercy. And you can take 100 steps away. It's only one step back. And he desires that none should perish. No, not one. So Israel, again, they're going back almost to the Stone Age. They're leaving the most modern city in the world, the most modern land, to go back to a place that's been left desolate. And as they go back in, God's going to use them to restore it. So they needed some words of encouragement and grace from the true and living God, the God of second chances. There's still hope for the future. And we should know God's word better than we know anything. You should know God's word better than you know anything else. You should know God's word better than you know uh, what your favorite songs are on the radio, uh, what your, the TV shows that you've memorized all the lines to. Guys, if we want to grow in faith, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by. So the more time you spend in God's word, the more your faith will grow. And that's what Ezra was doing when he came back. They're restoring them back. They're returning back to the word of God. And we need to have a passion for the word of God. So we can't fully understand David unless we understand what happened prior to David taking the throne. So grab your outline. We're going to take a look at lessons learned from the life of King Saul. And I put underneath it, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And these are all things that are practical applications to our life that we learn from the life of King Saul. Now, just quick background. We know that King Saul only became king because the people wanted a king, but they already had a king. Who was their king? The Lord, almighty God. But you know what happened? They looked at the world around them and they said, well, they got a king and they got a king and they got a king. So we need a king. No, we have a king and our king is better. I would love it if we just got rid of all political office and just made God king. Can I get an amen to that? Let's just go back to God king and let's just use the word of God and forget about the rest of it. Well, that's what they had. They rebelled against it. They cried out for a king and God allowed them to have a king. And they picked the tallest guy and the best looking guy. Sounds like politics sometimes, right? And has nothing to do with his character or anything else. And we'll see how that's going to work out. So first we're going to see this. These are the lessons we can learn from the life of King Saul. Rebellion and fear can keep us from having victory over a defeated enemy. God, remember when they went into the land of promise, God told them when he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt that he was going to give them victory in the land of promise. That they were going to triumph over the giants in the land. The battle had already been won. They just needed to show up. And here's the reality. The same is true with us. Guys, the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle's already been won. He just needs us to show up. Amen? We just need to show up and be, you know, be faithful to what he's called us to do, knowing that the battle's already been won. Point number two, a flesh-driven rebellion and refusing to repent will always end badly. You cannot walk in rebellion and fellowship at the same time. You have to choose one. And as you walk in rebellion, as you continue not to repent, it's always going to end horribly. Now, the good news is at any time during that time, you can repent. But if you choose not to, it will not end well. We're going to see that with King Saul. Number three there, a hard-hearted rebellion against God will always impact more than just us. You know, most often it brings great harm to those we love the most. You know, the problem we have in America today, one of the greatest problems we have is we have too many families without dads. Amen. And it's amazing when there's no dad in the house, there's more likely that the, the kids won't, you know, won't graduate from high school. More likely they'll get involved with crime. Because why? We need, God, we need godly. We need, don't just need dads. We need godly dads. Godly examples for our young people to follow. Amen. They're hungry for that. And the sad part is that when the dad rebels or the mom rebels, it impacts the whole family. 
And then it can impact other people who know you're a Christian. And we'll see that in tonight's text. Number four, the enemy loves nothing more than to see a man of God or a woman of God fail and bring harm to the cause of Christ. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything that Satan loves more than to see a professing Christian just completely fall off the rails and totally blow their testimony because then it's an opportunity to have all others mock Christianity and mock Jesus Christ. You know, one of, one of my biggest concerns as a pastor, and just as a, as a man who loves the Lord, the last thing I would ever want to do is cause harm to the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Every once in a while, I'll have somebody that I know or an acquaintance, a pastor that'll get involved with a, a, an affair or it's not a fair, it's an adultery. Quit dialing down the word, amen. He'll commit adultery or they'll get caught up with money or whatever it is. And, and, I've, and I've talked to some pastor friends of mine, I'd rather get hit by a bus. I'd rather be dead, seriously. Because guys, we don't want to harm the cause of Christ. We want to bring people to the Lord, not repel them from him, amen. And we're going to see, sadly, that's the picture, what's going to happen with King Saul. King Saul's going to fail miserably. He's the first king over Israel and they're going to use his dead body to mock the God that he serves. Number five, even in the most desperate of times, God, will, God always has valiant men. I might have misspelled that word valiant there. Hey, that, the reality is there's always godly men and women. There's always a remnant. Even when the world is going sideways, there's always faithful men and women of God. Amen? And we're going to see even in the mess, midst of this great big mess that there's still those that when, the, when everybody seems to be turning away from God, that are still standing up for the things of God. And then finally, the reasons why Saul failed so miserably, there's really just two. We're going to see a whole bunch of stuff where he messes up, but these are really the two ways that he fails. Number one, he didn't obey God. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the, than the fat of rams. That's, that was said of King Saul by Samuel. Because the problem is that too often we think if we just keep all the rituals and we do all the religious things, the highest form of worship is obedience. And the reason that he failed is he didn't obey God. And the reason that we will fail as a nation, the reason that our marriages will fail, the reason that the ministries are, if we don't obey God. And then secondly, he didn't seek direction from the Lord. He ran to the world. King Saul didn't obey what the word of God commanded. He kind of made his own way. We'll see that tonight. And then when he was in a mess, Instead of running to the Lord for help, he went to a medium, the witch at Endor, and asked the witch what she thought. Bad idea, amen? Here's the king of Israel. This is supposed to be God's man. And so tonight we'll take a look here again at the lessons we learned from the, from the life of King Saul. Let's begin by looking at rebellion and fear can keep us from having victory over a defeated enemy. Look at verse 1 there, 1 Chronicles 10. We're going to turn to Samuel in a moment. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. Now the Philistines, if you read the Bible at all, you got an idea who these people are. And the Philistines were a, a tribe of warriors, if you will, from the island of Crete, and they were advanced in their use of iron and things like that. So they had better weapons and they were known to be a, a mighty group of warriors. They were strong, they had better armor, they had better weapons and they put, the, they put fear into most people. Now we'll see it tonight as we flash back to 1 Samuel to get more detail on King Saul. 
that we know the, who's the most well-known of the Philistines? Goliath. And so this is the army, but here's the point. God told them when they entered into the land of promise that he would give them victory over them. So the battle's already been won. But because of their fear, they're going to not step out in faith. And when they fought Goliath, we'll see it in a moment, they were all scared to death because they were looking at things from the physical instead of the spiritual perspective. See, it's not, it's not a giant man against a small man. It's a puny man against Almighty God. And see, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the reason that we fear is we walk in our own strength and we get petrified by our circumstances instead of keeping our focus on the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Almighty God, the creator of the universe, who is greater than any difficulty we are ever going to face. Amen? That's the God we serve. And sadly, again, archaeologists also tell us, I don't know how they know this, but I was reading this. I have a biblical archaeology book, and they're talking about the Philistines, and they said they were hard drinkers. Did they have a bunch of Coors cans in their stuff? I don't know what happened. But somehow they know that they were hard drinkers, big fighters, you know, got in a lot of battles. Sounds like the Hell's Angels or something, right? But they were a fierce opponent that most people were afraid of. And that's who the Philistines were. And again, they were also seafaring people who traveled to distance, distant lands and they imported, again, better military technology from the Greeks and they became a powerful enemy to all the people of Israel. And again, they had Greek helmets and shields and swords and spears and it made them very, very formidable opponents. Now, Saul having rebelled against God saw the Philistines as an overwhelming and unbeatable opponent. When he had the Lord with him, early on, we saw, we're going to see it, Saul had some victories. And then he kind of got puffed up and thought he didn't need God's help. And then he started losing battles. And after he started losing battles, he knew that the Lord had taken his hand off of him. So now he was scared to death. And he was really scared of the Philistines because they were, they were, you know, bad dudes. And so because they were so, he was so afraid of them, he got to a place of fear. And what happened? It says there in verse 10, it says there that the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain in Mount Gabal. They ran from the enemy. They ran in fear. And the end result was they fell, which means they were, they were put to death. They were killed. Because they ran. Why did they run? Because they forgot that you plus God is a majority. Amen? They forgot that if God is for us, who can be against us? They lost sight of the fact that our God is greater. They ran. Rebellion and fear kept them from having victory over a defeated enemy. And God had promised to give them victory in the land. It says in 1 Samuel 28, the Philistines had, had attacked deep into Israel territory and Saul's army assembled and prepared for battle at Mount Gilboa. But because of the deep rebellion against the Lord, Saul was not ready for battle. And when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and in his heart trembled greatly, it said. I don't want a general whose heart is trembling greatly. That's not the guy I want me leading into battle, amen? I want somebody who knows that God is on our side, who steps out in faith, who's not gonna be fearful, who's gonna trust in the faithfulness of God. It's no wonder that Saul fell by the hands of the Philistines who were armed against him by his own sin and God's vengeance. See, the reason the Philistines defeat the children of Israel is not because the army is greater, because our God is greater. It's because 
their king was walking in open rebellion and the people were not walking by faith and they got caught up in idolatry and they were not pursuing the Lord. They were not walking in the spirit and God allowed the Philistines to have victory that they would have had if they had simply obeyed God. This is just true for all of us. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever that struggle is in life, if we will but obey God, he can bring us through whatever that trial is, whatever that difficulty is, whatever that temptation is. Amen? With temptation, God makes a way of escape and we can trust him. He is a faithful God. And it says there in verse two, then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Machteshua, Saul's son. Now we love Jonathan. John, who was Jonathan's best friend? David. King David. Now this whole book's about David, okay? So we're getting that transition. I want to see this, show you the transition from who the guy was before David, how he treated David, how he failed miserably, and then we're going to transition over to King David and see how God uses him mightily. And that's why I want to take some time tonight to look at this. So tragically, Saul's sons were affected by the judgment of God against their dad. The whole reason this mess is taking place is because, we'll see in a moment, it's because King Saul was, was not being faithful to the Lord, because King Saul was not walking in obedience to the word of God. And because he had made the choices that he had made, now it's going to impact his kids. His three boys die before he does. By the way, nobody, you don't want to have that happen. You don't want your children dying before you. It's not good. And sadly, it's King Saul's fault. The brave and worthy Jonathan died as he had lived, loyally fighting to the very end for his God, country, father, and king. He was a faithful man. And Jonathan was a faithful warrior. Remember that Jonathan went with his armor bearer and went against a garrison filled with Philistines by himself. You guys remember that from 1 Samuel? And he was crawling on his hands and knees going up to them. And that's, by the way, that's not the advantage you want. You want to be on the high side, not the low side. He's crawling up with one other guy and they go up and, and destroy a garrison by themselves because he knew, like King David, if God is for us, who can be against us? We shouldn't be overwhelmed by your enemy because our God is greater still. So Saul had been judged by God. And it says there in verse three, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers. Now we'll get back to this, but Saul had been judged by God. The reason that the arrows are hitting him is because he's not walking with the Lord anymore. Now, for us, we have a shield of faith. Amen? The Bible talks about putting on the whole armor of God. And so when temptation comes, God makes a way of escape. But when we're walking in our own strength, there is no shield. There is no armor. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Samuel 15. We're going to go through like 11 chapters briefly in Samuel. We're just going to hit some verses. But all of this is about King Saul. And then we'll come back to 1 Chronicles and finish there. So Saul had been judged by God back in 1 Samuel 15. People had cried out for a king. They chose Saul because he was handsome and head and shoulders taller than everyone else. He originally wins a few battles. So they cry out for a king. They get the king they want. God tells them if you choose him as king, he's going to bring disaster. They want him anyway. So God says, okay. Then he goes out and wins his first battle. And they're all like, see, we knew we were right. And see, sometimes when you rebel against God, it might go okay for a little while. You might be in rebellion against God and you might get away with it for a little while. You might not deal with the consequences right away. 
Well, that's what happened with Saul. And so they were very excited about King Saul. Look at 1 Samuel 15, beginning there in verse 1. It said, Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Previously, because the people cried out for it, God gave them what they wanted, not what he desired. And he had been anointed the king. He had already won a battle before this. And now Samuel comes to him to deliver to him a command from God. And he reminds him, oh, by the way, the Lord anointed you king. I was here when it happened. And now because you're the king and because God anointed you, look what it says at the end of that verse. Therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. See, if God has anointed, it filled you with this Holy Spirit, your response is now to obey the word of the Lord. He was called to be the king. And now his response is to obey the word of the Lord. Now, he's telling them this because what he's about to tell him is not going to be something that's really easy for him to do. But he's going to tell him, God says to do it, now you obey him. Okay, now watch. It says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel and how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now, it's been 300 years that they've been in the land of promise. But 300 years earlier, the Lord had said, I'm going to punish Amalek. Now the Amalekites, here's what they did. When the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, the Amalekites would hide up in the hills and the people that were straggling in the back, the elderly or those who might've been sick or wounded, they would come out from the hills and they would attack them and take from them and often kill them and plunder them. And God saw them doing it and God warned the Amalekites, I have seen what you have done and I am going to bring righteous judgment against you. Now he gave them 300 years to repent. So now Samuel comes to King Saul and says, Saul, you've been anointed king. God's telling you to obey him. You need to obey the Lord. And now here's what he wants you to do. Verse three. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill men and women, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, when you read that verse, is that not a hard verse to read? And when you read it at first glance, you think, wow, that doesn't seem fair. You know, here's the, here's the good news. The infants and small children that died, where did they go? They went to heaven. They were delivered from the bondage of these ungodly people who had been slaughtering people. And, and the Malachites in the Bible are a type or a picture of the flesh. And so they're fleshly, they're flesh driven. And so God's telling Saul to wipe out the flesh completely. Don't bring anything back. Because here's what happens when you give your life to the Lord. There's always at least a part of us that wants to hold on to some part of our flesh. Well, I'm ready to give my life to the Lord, but I really like this one thing over here. I had a lady, I had a boss that got saved and she said, well, I, you know, I, I led her to the Lord after years. She's like, well, that means I can't like drink whiskey all the time. I said, yeah, probably not. We had another guy that got saved at Calvary Santa Cruz and he came in for pre-marriage counseling and he's like, so Pastor Dave, you're telling me I have to get rid of all my porn? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and his fiance is like, yes. I'm like, yes. <laughs> but the point is that there's this temptation. When you walk in the flesh, right? And now you've given your life to the Lord, there's a temptation to want to hold on. Maybe that one sin that you just don't want to let go of. And he's telling him, wipe it all out. Put the flesh to death completely, amen? Then he says there in verse four. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them 
in Talim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. So hey, he's starting off right. He's got an army of 210,000 people. They're going to go out and fight the Amalekites. They're supposed to wipe them off the face of the earth. They've had 300 years to repent. They haven't done it. Now go do it. Go be faithful. You were anointed the king. Go be, here's King Saul. We're looking at him in depth. Okay, so far he's got the men mounted up. Skip down to verses 7 and 8. Now watch what happens. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Egypt. And he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people at the edge of the sword. Now, he took the king back home with him. Was he supposed to do that? What's the answer? He takes the king of the flesh. He wants to show him off. Look who I got. Got the king. He's dragging him by with a chain, right? Hey, look who I got. Here's my pet. I got the king of the flesh. And sometimes that's, again, it's the same thing that can happen with us. We hold on to that one sin. Well, I've given most of my life to the Lord, but I still want to hold on to this. And you know what's on God? You know, sometimes you get saved and you're, you're, sleeping, with, you're, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. And you think, well, I'm going to continue to do that. Or you're living with somebody outside of wedlock. You're dating an unbeliever. And God says, no, you're not supposed to do that. Well, I've given everything else to the Lord, but I'm just going to hang on to this. Guys, we need to surrender it all. Amen? And so what does he do? He hangs on to Agag. Hangs on to that king of the flesh. Verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agag. But so I thought it was just Agag. Look what else. And the best of the sheep, and the oxen, and the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good. They were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. They got rid of the lima beans and held on to the tri-tip, right? You know what I mean? Like, the stuff, we, the stuff we hate, you can have it. I'm keeping the good stuff. God says, wipe it all out. Okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to fully surrender, you know, something you don't even care about. And then you want to hang on to this. And so what do they do? They bring back the king of the flesh and, and they bring up the farm with them. They bring back all the, all the animals, right? Because in those days, that was wealth. People's wealth is determined by you know, how, many, how many herds do you have? How big are your flocks? How many horses do you have? And so they brought back the animals with them. And notice it says the people brought them back. But who's supposed to be leading this? Who's supposed to be leading it? King Saul. And so the leader is the one that's responsible. Look, I'm responsible in my home. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I'm responsible in my home that even when my older children have moved back in the house, I say, look, you can live here, but you're going to church. Then we're going to be in fellowship. We're going to honor God in this house. We're not going to do anything in this house that doesn't honor God. Amen? And so it's on us. It's on it. But King Saul, he brings back Agag, and now the people think, wow, we can just loot. Let's just get the stuff that's good, and we'll get rid of the stuff we didn't want. That's not honoring God. That's like having a holy Santa Claus in the sky, amen? Anything good, we can keep. Anything bad, we didn't want it anyway. We'll just dump all the garbage on the side of the road on the way home. So he kept what he wanted. He destroyed what he didn't. But here's the bottom line. He's rebelling against God. He's disobeying what the word of God says. Go down to verse 11. It says, I greatly regret. The Lord came to Samuel and said this. So the Lord comes to Samuel and says, I greatly regret that I set up Saul as king. Now, you don't want the word, I greatly regret by God, and then your name after that. That's not good. I greatly regret letting Dave be the pastor of Calvary Chapel. No, I, would, I don't want that. Amen? I don't, and he greatly regrets it. If God greatly regrets it, you're in trouble. Look what it says there. I greatly regret it. 
For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now here's the heart of a real prophet, a man of God. What does he do? Somebody falls and instead of running to point fingers at him and tell everybody else, it breaks his heart. And as believers, when we see somebody fall, it shouldn't make us feel better about ourselves. It shouldn't make us look down. It should break our hearts. Amen? Samuel goes and weeps all night because King Saul didn't obey God. Now watch what happens in verse 14. Oh, verse 12, excuse me. 13. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul and was told Saul, Saul saying, verse 17, 13, 12, excuse me. Saul went up to Carmel. Indeed, he set up a monument for himself. And he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. So he goes up and sets up a, he sets up a monument to himself. So God wins the, the, the war. He sets up a monument to himself, and he's going up and down, dragging Agag behind him with all the, the herds coming behind him. And he's like, look, what a stud am I? Look at me. Let's build a monument to me. Let's make it about me. And then let's, let's have a parade, and then let's bring all this stuff into the land. And won't the people be amazed what a mighty king they have? And it says in verse 14, then Samuel went to Saul. And Saul said to him, blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He sees Samuel coming and he thinks he's going to beat him to the punch. Hey, blessed are you of the Lord. I did everything God told me to do. Now, by the way, Samuel knows the Lord. So he knows you're lying. Amen. And sometimes we, we try to even convince ourselves that we're obeying God. You know, and, and, and use Christianese, right? Blessed are you, bro. And I obeyed the Lord. Well, let's see. If you never wonder if God has a sense of humor, look at verse 14. But Samuel said, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of oxen that I hear? I've done everything the Lord told me to do. Bah. <laughs> right? Can you just, can't you just see it? Don't you love it? Right? He said, I've done everything the Lord told me to do. And all of a sudden you can hear all the animals making this noise. What is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? Now watch what Saul does. You've heard me say this. When confronted with sin, you can do one of three things. You can make excuses, you can accuse others, or you can repent. Let me say that one more time. You can make excuses, you can accuse others, or you can repent. Now watch what Saul does. Classic. And Saul said, so what, why, why hear all these sheep? What's going on? Here's what he says. And Saul said, they have brought back from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. I cheated on my taxes, Lord, so I could tithe more. Yeah. Right? Like, you try to turn an ungodly thing and say, well, first of all, it was them. So he's making, he's pointing fingers at someone else. He's accusing others. And then he makes an excuse, but, you know, anything we brought back, we just brought back to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, again, we don't change the terms of obedience before the Lord. We obey the word of God the way the, the word of God is written down. Amen. We don't change it. We don't alter it. You know, progressive Christianity, first of all, is neither progressive or Christian. Amen? But what they do is they try to change the Bible to fit their lifestyle. Well, no one in the Bible says Jesus say it's not okay to be homeless. Everything in the Bible comes from the Lord. Amen? Amen. We don't change the Bible. And here's King Saul, and he's pointing at other people. He's not being the spiritual leader and the man of God. He's making excuses, and he's accusing others. Now watch verse 16. Then Samuel says to him, Shutty town. He says, be quiet. 
He tells them to shut up. You know, it takes a lot to get a prophet to tell someone to shut up. When the guy's lying, first of all, he lies, and then he points at somebody else, and then, by the way, he says to the Lord, your God. That ought to tell us something, too. He doesn't say to the Lord, my God. He says to the Lord, your God, and then he, and Samuel's response is, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night, and he said to him, speak on. Oh, by the way, you need to be quiet. God told me something last night. Now he's going, oh, uh-oh. Okay. What did he say? Verse 17. He says, and I love this. It's such a great, so Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? When you were humble, when you were not full of yourself, when you didn't think it was all about you, when you were simply a tool in the hand of the master, didn't the Lord then anoint you king over Israel? It's when you're humble, it's when you're usable, when, when it's not about you, when it's about the Lord, when you're willing to give him all the praise and the glory because you know you didn't do it, he did it, amen? But pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And watch what happens, verse 18. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. The word they're consumed in the original language is exterminated. They need to be removed off the face of the earth. And again, when you see that, it's hard to read, but understand for 300 years, they had a chance to repent. For 300 years, there were pagan idolaters. There were murderers. There were wicked, vile people. God gave them 300 years to repent. And now he's telling Saul to look, if you don't wipe out the Amalekites, if you don't put the flesh to death, the flesh is going to destroy you. And so he tells him to, to destroy them, to wipe them out. Verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? See, when we don't obey, God sees it as evil. If we don't obey, we're evil. That's what the Bible says. So when we choose to disobey what the word of God says, it's not just, well, I, I pick and choose what I want. It's a desire, it's a, you're, you're actually being evil. Now again, I love verse 19, though. That's another opportunity to repent. Why did you not obey? Couldn't he repent at each of these times? Each of these times, he could have asked God to forgive him. And sadly, he does not. Verse 20. So watch what happens here. And Saul said to Samuel, but, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Look, you can't say that I'm obeying God over and over and over and, all, and make it true somehow. The reality is that they were diso he had disobeyed God. It doesn't matter how many times he says that he did obey him. He says, I've gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. First of all, when we get to King David, he's going to be fighting the Amalekites for the next hundred years. So not only did he not, not only did he bring Agag back, and not only did he bring back the animals, but he didn't kill all the Amalekites, because the Amalekites are going to be a problem. And we're going to see at the end of tonight's text that an Amalekite is going to be the one that informs David that Saul's dead. So he didn't put the Amalekites to death, so now the Amalekites are going to be a problem for him. And it says now, hey, praise the Lord for rain, amen? But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So again, he continues to blame the people. He doesn't take responsibility for the choices he's made. Verse 22 and 23. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings as obeying the voice of the Lord. Here it is. You guys ready? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. 
So he says, I brought back animals so we could make sacrifices. And then the Lord, then through Samuel, he says, it's better to obey God than to make sacrifices to God. Amen? It's better to obey the Lord. It's better to honor God and do what he's called you to do. Because you rejected the word of God, notice what it says there, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. To disobey God is equal to witchcraft. And stubbornness, the iniquity of idolatry, and because you rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you as being king. So because God had a calling on his life, God gave him a clear command, he chose to do the opposite, he was given several opportunities to repent, he refused to repent, so now God's taking the kingdom away from him. It's better to obey than to sacrifice. Jump all the way down to verse 26. But Samuel said, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you. That's another, I don't want to hear the Lord has rejected me. Amen? And that's the sad and tragic part. The kingdom's been ripped from him. The Lord has rejected him. Go down to verse 33. And then it says, but Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, and your mother... Uh, be childless among women. So here's what happens here. So he tells him he's not going to be king anymore. He brings judgment against him. And then he says, Samuel says, go get Agag. Go get him. And Agag comes in and he's in chains. And as soon as he sees Samuel, he takes a sigh of relief. Because by this point, Samuel's probably in his 80s. So he sees this old gray-haired guy standing there and Saul's the big, you know, strong guy standing next to him who, who didn't put him to death. And he brings Agag out. And what does Samuel do? He, or Saul, uh, yeah, Samuel do. He takes a sword. And what does he do to Agag? He chops him up into pieces. There's a lesson here, though. How do you defeat the king of the flesh? What's the sword a picture of? The word of God. Amen. The only way we have victory over the flesh is through the word of God. Amen? Amen. And so he used the, the, the sword to hack him. And it says, verse 35, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for him. So chapter 15, we've seen his rebellion begin. We've seen the kingdom's been ripped from him. Now I'm just going to give you some brief things about the next several chapters. So then in chapter 16, David gets anointed king. But it says in verse 14, but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So here's what happens. When he was anointed king, he had the Holy Spirit on him because he disobeyed God. It's not like today as born again believers, the Holy Spirit never leaves us. But in those days, the Holy Spirit would be given for a specific piece, uh, amount of time and, and the spirit was taken from him. And then David was anointed king. And even when David was anointed king, his own father didn't think much of his son. Because remember he said, bring your sons in. And he didn't bring David in. He brought all his other sons in except David. And they went to each one, and it wasn't him, and they finally uh, called David in and anointed him king. Chapter 17 comes along. Now remember that by this point, Saul has been told that the kingdom's been ripped from you, and God is going to bring vengeance upon you. So now you understand they're fighting the Philistines in chapter 17, and they're all mounted up. And David, because he's the youngest, he's still home watching the sheep, but all his older brothers are out there. But what's happening is they're mounted up. And if you go to Israel with us, if the Lord tarries, if not, we'll see it when he gets back. Amen. But the Valley of Elah, it's perfect for a battle. There's got these mountains, mount, you know, low hills on each side. You can just see where, the, where each army was mounted up. And then every day, 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath came down and defied them to send out their champion. You send out your champion. If I defeat him, 
You'll serve us. If he defeats me, we'll serve you. But every time he came down, and how deep is the voice of 11 foot 750? Can you just hear him, right? I defy you. I can just hear Goliath coming down. You know, how loud would it be to hear 11 foot 750 covered in armor walking down the hill? And what's happening on this side? Everybody's shaking in their boots. Why? Because they're operating in their own strength. King Saul is the most scared to death of all of them because he's their king. He's supposed to be their warrior, but he already knows that God said, I took the Holy Spirit from you, and I'm going to bring vengeance upon you. So he's like, dude, I don't want, and he's like offering up his daughter to anybody else will do it. Anybody else who does it, no taxes. And you can have my daughter. <laughs> this is a dude's wimping out hard. Amen. This is a guy that wants no part of this fight. So David comes to bring cheese to his brothers. He's the milkman. Seriously. His dad says, go take this to your brothers. They're fighting on battle. So David shows up and he sees Goliath come down and everybody hides and they're, they're scared half to death. And David says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that comes against the Lord? Who's this guy? Why is everybody shaking? Well, and then they tell him, his, bro, his, his brothers say, why don't you go back and take care of the sheep? And they're mocking their little brother. And he goes to, he goes to King Saul, I'll fight him. And they try to give him Saul's armor. And he says, I don't, this doesn't fit. I don't need that. And he goes out and we know that God is for him. He, he takes Goliath out. Goliath has an armor bearer. It's two against one. I, I guarantee the armor bearer was bigger than David too. And they're all covered in armor and he's got rocks. But see, you plus rocks and God is the mistakes of the winner. Amen. <laughs> if you've got rocks and they got nuclear weapons, you win if God's on your side. And he fires it, hits Goliath. Can you imagine 11 foot 750, how it sounded hitting the dirt? Right? And the, the dust kicks up. And it says in the text, they took Goliath's sword, chopped Goliath's head off. And you know, you know that dude's head had, if he's 750, his head's got to be 100 pounds. And so what is he doing? The cloud comes away and there's David standing on top of his body, holding up, he had to have two hands, holding up, his, you know, it's like a sack of concrete. He's holding it up and everybody sees it. And, and guess what happens? All the guys who were once afraid start charging down the hill. And all the Philistines run away and they get chased and they're wiping them out along the way. Why? Because there was one godly man in the camp who saw things from a biblical perspective and knew that God was greater than any enemy and was not afraid of any giant in the land. So he stepped out in faith. And when he stepped out in faith, everybody else got faith. Amen. That's what happened. Amen. And King Saul's back there, dude. Now, do you think Saul's going to like the fact that King David, all of a sudden, is the warrior that he's not? He's not going to like that. He's immediately going to hate David. When you get to chapter 17, they're singing a song. The women are singing a song. Saul has slayed his thousands. He's like, oh, I like that. And David is tens of thousands. Because, see, they, were, they started fighting, and they started winning more battles, and David became a mighty warrior, and he's a teenager. And he's wiping out the enemy. And he's a greater warrior than Saul ever thought about being. And now they're singing songs about him. So what does Saul want to do? Kill David. Saul sees this guy as a threat to the throne. Well, no, dude, you're the threat to your own throne because you got kicked off because you disobeyed God. Amen. And so he now has an arch enemy. It's David. He knows God is going to bring judgment. And he knows David is, is the rightful king. And David's the one who has the power of God upon him. And so he wants to get rid of him. So Saul invites David to a feast. And while David's eating, he throws a spear at him. If someone invites you over for dinner and they throw spears at you, that's not good. And by the way, he throws spears at him three times. 
Well, at least twice, and then once at his own son, Jonathan. This guy, by the way, Saul's not much of a warrior. He can't throw spears very well either, evidently, because they're at the table and he can't hit anybody. It's like, it's like Peter fishing. I never see him catching fish unless Jesus is in the boat with him, amen? But here's the thing. All of a sudden now, instead of repenting and saying, this is God's man and desiring to serve with David and honor the Lord, he wants to get rid of him. And it's like, it's like when, when the word of God convicts people, what do, what do they want to do? They want to get rid of the word of God. Why are people so petrified when they see crosses on a hillside and they want to get rid of it? I told you that when my son died seven months ago, my other children made a cross and they put it on the hill behind my house so we could look at it and, and, we, we, and we could hike up there and they wrote stuff about their brother and Bible verses on it. And after three days, somebody stole it because it's, it's convicting. If you, you could leave a boot up there for a hundred years, no one's touching it. Nobody cares. But the cross offends people. And when someone's walking with the Lord, they see it as a threat. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And when you get down to verse 25 in chapter 18, it says there, chapter 18, verse 25, it says there, then Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry. So remember he said, if you kill them, I'll give you my daughter. So now he says, here's what I want for a dowry for my daughter. A hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Really? There are some things in the Bible I'm glad we don't have video of. Amen? <laughs> but he sends him out, and he thinks what he's going to do. Here's what he thinks he's going to do. He goes, dude, if that dude goes to try to get foreskins off a hundred Philistines, he's going to be dead. So he sends him out. What does David do? He comes back with 200 foreskins. Because if God is for you, who can be against you? Amen? And David goes out and does double. And it's just starting to get Saul a headache. Like, dude, I was trying to, you know, oh, now I have to give him my daughter. He ended up taking her away and giving her to somebody else. So David, Saul knew that the Lord was with David and Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continuing. In chapter 19 and verse one, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants and said, hey guys, come here, I got a mission for you. You guys need to go kill David. So he calls in his son and all these guys to go kill David. And then we're going to see that Jonathan is going to kind of stick up for David later. In verses 5 and 6, Jonathan goes out and warns David instead. Jonathan also was filled with the Holy Spirit. You've heard that blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. Amen. So his dad told him to do it, and that's his blood, but the Holy Spirit outranks that. Amen. Even though his dad told him to do it, I'm not doing it because the Holy Spirit doesn't want me to do it. So it says there in chapter 19 and verse 6, so Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore. So what he does is he comes to him and he says to him, hey dad, David's a good guy, man. Dave, right? Didn't he kill Goliath when everybody else was shaking in their boots? By the way, he's won all these battles ever since. And look, you sent him out and he brought back the foreskins of 200 Philistines. This is a good guy to have on our side. We should have David on our side. So what does he say? He says, okay, all right, Jonathan, I won't, I, I won't do it. I'll leave him alone. He says in verse six, as the Lord lives, so he shall not be killed. He's gonna believe that for about a minute and a half. And he's gonna be getting after David again. It says there in verse 10, then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. What happened to verse six? He said, I'll never kill him. And by verse 10, he's throwing spears at him again. When you get to chapter 20, David and Jonathan's hearts are knit together. 
The Holy Spirit again is thicker than blood. Saul's angry was aroused against Jonathan, and he said, uh, uh, he says to him, go, go to verse 31, 31 of chapter 20. And this is just comical. So what happens is his son continues to, to stand by David. So he's getting mad at his son. And this is what he says to him in verse 30. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said, you're the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that his wife? Hello? It's his wife. He says, you're the son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? You're what he's saying is you're choosing the anointed king, the godly man over your own family. And the Bible does tell us there's times where we're going to have to do that maybe. Amen? Doesn't mean we don't continue to love our family, but we are always going to side with what the Lord tells us to do over what maybe even our family wants us to do. Amen? Amen. It's not always easy, but it's biblical. Verse 32, Jonathan answered to Saul, his father, and said, why should he be killed? What has he done? And Saul cast his spear at him to kill him. He turned, now he's throwing Saul's at Jonathan, throwing spears at Jonathan. Is there any wonder why this guy's not continuing to be king? Do we understand? This is why I'm telling you all this. So when we finish up the chapter in a moment, back in First Chronicles, and you see what happens to him, you're going to go, well, duh. Because see, sometimes when you read through First Chronicles, you just go, well, why poor, poor Saul? Why did God do that to Saul? You go back and read all this. We're getting the picture, aren't we? This guy is not a godly man. He cast the spirit of his own son to kill him. Later on, uh, they put together a, a way of knowing if it was safe for David. David went out and hid among the rocks. And you guys remember this, the way that what they used was, was arrows. And he said, David, I'm going to find out if it's safe for you to come back around my dad. I'm going to talk to my dad. His dad says no. And he goes out and he shoots the arrows and they go past David. And David knows that if they go past me, it means I'm not safe and I have to leave. And David was there by the rocks. And you can just imagine as Jonathan's got the bow out, he's really hopeful that the arrow's going to fall in front with him so he can go back and be with his family and be with God's people. And when the arrows go by, now that means he's got to run for his life. So we see for the next several chapters, David is running for his life. I'm going to paraphrase the rest of this. So David's running for his life. He's hiding in caves. He's on the run. And God gives him opportunities to take out Saul multiple times. One of the times he's there in, and, uh, in Gedi, and King Saul comes into a cave. King Saul mounts up his men to go out and kill David. That's his whole, his, he's got one track mind. Kill David, kill David, kill David. He wakes up in the morning, kill David, kill David, kill David, kill David. That's all he's thinking. And so he's after David and it says that Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. He's going to the bathroom. Is there a more vulnerable position? And David is in the cave and we see that in previous chapters, they had 400 men join him. We're all distressed and discouraged men. So these 400 guys whose lives were a mess and they mount up behind David. They become David's mighty men, they become mighty warriors. And there's King Saul with his, you know, his robe down and he's squatting. And the 400 guys are like, dude, hello, God just brought him. Stick a knife in the dude, right? There he's right there. And David says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed. And what does he do instead? He cuts off a piece of his robe. And then later he cries out to, to Saul and he says, uh, yeah, hello, here's a piece of your robe. I could have killed you. And what does Saul do? He apologizes. He says, you're a greater man than I am. But guess what? 
little time goes by, and now he's hunting David again. This time David goes into his camp when, and he's sleeping. And he goes in and takes away some of his, and he, then he comes back and he's waving to him, look, I got your stuff again. And Saul continues to chase David and David continues to refuse to fight against Saul. He said, that's the Lord's anointed. Vengeance is mine. I will pay, says the Lord. I'm going to leave him in God's hands. Amen? So Saul never gets over it. Saul continues to get worse. And then finally, you know, David spares him. He tells David that you're more righteous than I am. But then he continues to go after him. And Saul and 3,000 men are seeking David in the wilderness of Ziph. And David spares him again. And again, it's uh, David's companion. God has delivered him. Why don't you kill him? He said, do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed? And then Saul... Uh, hearing that, said, may you be blessed, my son. And then we get to chapter 28, and Saul's a mess, and he, and he consults a witch. He is continually not turned to the Lord. He consults a witch at Endor. And it's, it's kind of a controversial passage, because he says, Samuel, by this point, has died. And so he goes to a witch to see if she can summon up Samuel to give him advice. And then Samuel appears so it's either something demonic or it truly is Samuel that God allowed it to happen, but he's going to give him advice and he's still not going to take it. It's just sad. It says there in verse 16 to 20 of 1 Samuel chapter 28, and we'll get back to the text. Let me just read this to you. 1 Samuel 28 verses 16 to, to 20 says this. It says, then Samuel said, so why do you Ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. So this is the vision of Samuel or the Spirit. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath, wrath against the Amalekites, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you to this day. See, he keeps wondering why. He doesn't have victory anymore. It's because he disobeyed God when he told him to wipe out the Amalekites. Guys, if we hang on to the flesh and we walk in, walk in open rebellion against God, we can't be surprised when God doesn't bless it. Amen? Why isn't God blessing my relationship? Well, you're with an unbeliever. Why isn't God blessing this, this, this thing? that Well, it's unethical what you're doing. Why isn't God blessing this? Why isn't God blessing that? Because you're not honoring the Lord. When we get to chapter 31, it becomes the parallel to tonight's text. So flip back over to 1 Chronicles. So did you get a little taste of King Saul? Okay, we got a little taste of who this guy is, right? I, again, I wanted you to know that because if you just read through it, it looks like poor King Saul. What did he do to deserve it? Now you know. Amen? Open rebellion, open rebellion, open rebellion, open rebellion, always about himself. So there we pick up there in verse 4. So the archers had hit King Saul. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust, it, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, it's an Amalekite that runs to King David and says, hey, we were out fighting in a battle and I came upon King Saul and he was laying there wounded and he asked me to run a sword through him to put him out of his misery. So I ran a sword through him 
to put him out of his misery. And then he tells that to King David. And he thinks King David's probably going to give him a reward because Saul's been trying to kill him for decades. But what does David do? He tells him, you're not to touch the Lord's anointed. And he calls a man in to put that Amalekite to death. Now, either the Amalekite is lying, which is probably what happened, because he wants the reward. And David actually, I mean, and Saul actually did thrust himself through, or the Amalekite did it. But in either case, the word of Saul's death was given to David by an Amalekite, and he wouldn't have even been alive if Saul just obeyed God and killed all the Amalekites. It's not ironic. Isn't that ironic? Amen? If we don't put the flesh to death, the flesh may be the one that reports our death. Amen? And this is so tragic because if he had just obeyed God, he would have never been in these circumstances. But isn't that true for all of us? Flesh-driven Saul held on to the king of the flesh, Agag, and spirit-filled David puts the Amalekite messenger to death. One guy holds on to the flesh and one is wiping the flesh out. It says there in verse five, and when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons had died and all the house, all his house died together. So all the all the, you know, the males in the family have all died. And they've all died because King Saul was not an honorable man, was not a godly example to his boys, was not a godly king, didn't obey God. And if anything, and it's hard to say what could possibly wor be worse after you die. Well, a flesh-driven rebellion refusal to repent will end badly, and it just did. But hard heart rebellion against God will always impact more than just us. In verse 7, it says, There are when all the men of Israel who were in the valley, saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook their cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Everybody abandoned their cities. Everybody abandoned the land that God had given them victory over. Now the Philistines are dwelling in it because King Saul had not honored the Lord and his choices impacted his three boys who are now all dead. And now the kingdom has been overrun by the Philistines because he did not honor the Lord. Point number four, the enemy loves nothing more than to see a man of God fail and bring harm to the cause of Christ. Now watch this. This is the, the Philistines wanting to give the ultimate shame to King Saul. Watch what they do. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain and they found Saul and the sons fallen at Mount Gilboa. They stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened their head, his head in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was a half fish, half man god. It was something that was created by men. And now hanging in there is, is the head of King Saul. His armor is in a place of idolatry. They're taking this man that God wanted to use in a mighty way, and now they're using his dead body as a mockery to the true and living God and as something that uh, will, you know, make it look like their God is greater than our God. Now, Dagon, here's just this quick side note for you Bible folks. Uh, at one point, they're going to bring the Ark, of the, they brought the Ark of the Covenant in and put it next to Dagon. You guys remember this? What did Dagon do? fell down. So they put, they propped their God back up. If you have to prop your God up, that's not good. But they had to prop their, they propped their God back up. They come back in the next day and their, their God fell over and broke. 
So we know who's God is God, amen? But at this point, they're mocking the true and living God, and the mockery takes place because of Saul's actions. And guys, we don't want to live in such a way that brings mockery to our God. We're all sinners saved by grace. I'm not saying we're going to be perfect, but when we sin, we should be quick to repent, amen? And we want to see God glorified always. Lord, help. It's my prayer daily. Lord, help. Today, Lord, be glorified in my life. Loves nothing better than to see the fall of a man of God. I wrote in the notes there, take heed lest ye fall. How many of us could fall? Raise your hand. Okay. If you don't think you can fall, you probably will. Because you know when you know that you can, it keeps you desperate, doesn't it? Keeps you humble. Keeps you crying out to the Lord. Lord, I need your help. Let's finish up. Last two points. So we saw down there at verse 10, it says they put his armor in verse 11 and 12. is even in the most desperate of times, God always has valiant men. I love this. This reminds me of, uh, remember when uh, Elijah thought he was the only one left? God, I'm going to admit, it's just me. I'm the only one left. Matter of hiding. Ravens are bringing me food. It's just me. And the Lord says, I got 700 more just like you, bro. Pastor Dave, paraphrase. But I got 700 more just like you. God, you know, God doesn't need us. We need him. Amen? But God will use us if we will let him. Amen? Now watch what it says here in verse 11 and 12 as we finish up. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. The men of Jabesh Gilead, these valiant men, when they heard about it, when the one, battle, one of the battles that Saul did win early on is he saved Jabesh Gilead. He had gone in and helped them in a battle and brought, brought victory for them. And so they had remembered King Saul. And when they heard that his body had been defiled, they mounted up and went back and, and, and brought his body back away. So there were some valiant men, even when everybody's running scared, there were some that were standing up. Even when everybody's closing their churches, there are people that kept them open. Amen? Even when the world is doing one thing, there's still those that remain faithful. And then finally, the reasons why he failed so miserably, look what it says. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord because he consulted a medium for guidance. So there's two things we see here. Notice it doesn't say that because he tried to kill David, even though that was wrong. It doesn't say because of the other things that he had done. It was these two things that brought the end of him. And again, here they are. He didn't obey God. God told him to do it. I'm not doing it. God said, kill all the Amalekites. He brought the Amalekites back. And then when he was at a loss, he didn't run to the Lord. He ran to the world. He ran to a witch. So it says there, he consulted a medium for guidance, I'm glad I'm an extra large, not a medium. How about you? But it says here, he consulted a medium. That's not good. Amen. And then it says in verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Guys, if we cease to be humble, broken, and desperate and crying out to the Lord, we cease to be usable by the Lord. Amen. We need to be in a place where we're always crying out to God. Where we, where, I've, been, I've been teaching the Bible. Someone asked me this the other day, and, I'm, and I, I'll give a rough estimate. I think I've taught about 3,500 Bible studies, somewhere around there. 
Do you know that before every time I teach during the last song, I'm crying out to God, please show up. Because Lord, if you don't show up, this is gonna be a mess. Amen? We must never think that we've arrived. We must never think that we've got it. Lord, without him, we could do nothing, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen? And so we need to be humble and say, Lord, use me. I'm here. I, 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 I've got, you know all my flaws. You know me best. You love me most. But Lord, I'm here. I'm available. Use me for your kingdom and for your glory. Help us to obey the word and to go to the Lord for direction, not to the world. Amen? So in closing, Lessons learned from the life of Saul. Rebellion and fear can keep us from having victory over defeat. The, the enemy was already defeated, but he was so afraid he wouldn't step out and fight him. A flesh-driven rebellion refusing to repent will always end badly. It ends with his death because he continued not to repent, and in the end, it brought his demise. Hard-hearted rebellion against God will always impact more than just us. It impacted the entire city. They lost all their people. The Philistines took over. His children died. Verse 8 the enemy loves nothing more than to see a man of God fail and bring harm to the cause of Christ because of his actions. It not only brought death to his sons, they not only lost their homeland, but now God was being mocked. Verse 11 and 12, even though it's desperate at times, God always has valiant men. Praise God that there's always that remnant that will stand for God when nobody else will. May we be those people, amen? And then finally, the reasons why he failed because he didn't obey God and he sought direction, did not seek direction from the Lord. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. Thank you for everyone's patience as we kind of went through a lot of background tonight. But Lord, I thank you, Lord, for hearts like King David. And help us to be men and women after your own heart. Men and women, Lord, who want to walk in the center of your will, who'd rather die with conviction than live with compromise. Lord, fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Lord, without you, we can't do anything. But Lord, we want to be tools in the hands of the master, used for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said...